Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike and Jude are joined by Kurt M. Campbell, Coordinator for Indo-Pacific Affairs in the National Security Council, and Mira Rapp Cooper, Director for Indo-Pacific Strategy at the National Security Council. They discuss the U.S. Indo-Pacific Strategy one year on. Welcome back to the H Chessboard. I'm Mike Green, and my colleague Jude Blanchett and I are delighted that we're joined now by um, two of the key architects of the Biden administration's Indo-Pacific strategy, the coordinator for Indo-Pacific at the White House, Dr. Kurt Campbell, and director for Indo-Pacific strategy uh, under Kurt at the White House, Dr. Amira Rapp-Herper. Welcome both, and thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Mike. It's an honor to be here. Now, we usually start these discussions by asking people how they got here and how they got interested, because there are a lot of people who listen who are aspiring to be you or people who are retired and thinking back on their own careers. And um, you've both been on before, so I don't have to ask you how you got here. People can go back in the archives. But let me ask you this, Kurt, first, and then Mira. Kurt, this is your, I don't know, fourth, fifth stint in government. You started in the White House in the early Clinton years and then the Pentagon State Department. I'd ask you sort of like, how has strategy and policymaking changed? And then Mira, you, I like to think that we picked you out of obscurity and launched you to fame at CSIS when you worked with us. But the more accurate rendering would be we enjoyed a brief chapter in your meteoric rise um, when you ran the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative. But for Mira, after I go to Kurt, you know, you, I know, had a lot of expectation you would pursue an academic career with your degree from Columbia and so forth. If you could reflect a little bit on the academic strategy policy divide and the gap? And were you trained for this stuff? Are academics coming out of the system ready to do what you do? Any thoughts on that? But Kurt, first you, what's different, you know, compared to 27 years ago, whatever it was yeah. when you were first in the White House? Yeah, it's 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 weird, Mike. Just suddenly just turn around and you're older. And, you know, you, you know, I still think of myself as a young person and, you know, still have quite a lot of energy. But the truth is that's been you know, I, you know, as I reflect back on it, my first opportunity was actually uh, on the joint staff. And, and so I worked, uh, I was in uniform for much of that time. And I worked uh, within the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, General Powell, and also worked at the Gen 5. At that point, I worked primarily on European issues. This was at the tail end of the Cold War. So momentous changes taking place in on the European uh, mainland, and we, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about how to configure our forces, how to engage the former Soviet Union. So, just an enormously, you know, critical time. So, I've had an opportunity to serve in a lot of capacities in a lot of different places. And I often ask the question about what has changed. I will say, you know, Mike, I learned an enormous amount from you in two ways. One, when I first worked at the Pentagon, you helped me understand Japan in a way that was that I reflect on almost on a daily basis, actually, just a, a nuance and a level of, of, of richness that that still animates. I, I you don't you don't get any blame for this, but at least, at least animates how I try to think of the the region as a whole. But then subsequently, you talked to me a little bit about you know the idea of being at the White House and at the National Security Council. Um, I'm struck at the National Security Council. You have it within your grasp every tool of the U.S. government to try to bring to bear with respect to the formulation and execution strategy. 
And I will tell you, having worked on various pieces of that puzzle, it is nice to have a chance to try to figure out how those pieces fit together. And so I will simply say that, that part of my experience has been the ability to marshal larger sort of, you know, agencies and, you know, a, a larger process towards a effort to step up our game in the Indo-Pacific. I will say that part of this is probably getting older. Uh, part of it is, is just the nature of the environment we are living. Government is much harder. It's probably less fun. I remember, Mike, once you and I were sitting down listening to anecdotes from Rich Armitage in his years when he was at the Pentagon in the Reagan administration. Maybe it's just the period that we're living in, but, but the states seem higher. It's extraordinarily challenging. And, you know, there are days where, you know, you're thinking, gosh, was it always this hard? Mira? Thanks, Kerbal. I certainly um, don't have the same storied government history to build on, but I do have a wonderful set of experiences uh, in my track record. Mike, I think you should take full credit for plucking me out of obscurity because that is indeed exactly what you did in giving me my first job out of graduate school down here in Washington. As you noted, um, I was academically trained with a PhD from Columbia and in many ways decided to move into policy in spite of the fact that I was a political scientist, not because of it. I think part of the reason I was so excited to take a job with you at CSIS and take on the challenge of helping to build the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative is that I knew many aspects of my personality were in many ways better suited to this world. I like working in teams. I'm very outgoing. I like challenges. I like tight deadlines. So in some ways, that first job working at CSIS was the proving ground for the fact that I really did want to be um, working with others and towards common objectives in a policy setting. Now, nothing sort of quite prepares you for NSC, which is an environment entirely unto itself. But it's been an extraordinary experience spending the last two years here. Um, and I'm deeply grateful for how much you invested in me early in my career, how much Kurt has mentored me, um, and to a few others who have helped me along the way, not only to make my way from academia into the policy world, but to become a true Asia expert um, in a way that I think we all agree we need more of in this moment. Now, to your question about whether academia really prepares folks to go into the policy world, I think the answer is it depends. I think, obviously, by and large, political science is not focused on preparing future policymakers. Other academic degrees are not focused on preparing future policymakers. But there are some types of degrees, and I would say perhaps more specifically, certain types of professors and specific figures who can indeed make great training for future policymakers. Mike, obviously, you are a sort of consummate scholar practitioner who does indeed prepare students to go into the policy world. But but someone who I have thought of almost every day that I've been serving in government is my own dissertation advisor who passed away about a year ago, uh, whose name was Bob Jervis. I just attended last Friday a conference at Columbia where we were honoring his memory and talking about his life's work and its influence on us. And it won't surprise either Jude or Mike to know that many of his former students who are in the policy world were part of that conference. That includes Colin Call, our Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Derek Cholet, the State Department Counselor, other scholar practitioners like Victor Cha, and I'm very lucky to be able to include myself among that number. And part of the reason Bob was such a great mentor, both to academics and folks who went on to the policy world, is that what he really studied and taught us was about decision-making under complexity and uncertainty. 
So one of the things that I think we can all take away from his life's work is the fact that, you know, clean parsimonious models, neat methodologies may not prepare you all that well for policymaking, but there are certain types of thinkers and certain types of approaches who can indeed help their students to better prepare for jobs like the one that I have the privilege to serve in right now. I, I do want to say one thing on that, Mike. One of the reasons, for instance, that Mira has been so successful and a few others like her is that she is systematically and analytically trained, right? And we understand history a little bit, have a little able to bring previous experience to bear. I am struck that the coin of the realm right now is a law school degree. And so many of the people that have decided to go into policy come to it from that venue. And it's very helpful, rigorous, orderly thinking, but it also um, um, imagines that a series of sort of interrogating questions are going to lead you to the right answer if you understand sort of the nature of the immediate circumstances in front of you, where in fact, a lot of time having some histories, have some knowledge, some frankly, analytical training and historical training in case studies gives you enormous advantages. I'm so glad you mentioned Bob Jervis because I was actually going to ask you about him because he's such a huge towering figure for so many people in the policy world and such a nice guy. I, I He was not my dissertation advisor, but he acted like he was. He just was such a nurturing uh, intellectual uh, mentor. And the field is it does have people like him. Dick Samuels at MIT on Japan, our friend John Eikenberry at Princeton. I mean, there are scholars who are not aspiring to be practitioners, but equip their students with the ability to succeed in either academia or policymaking. And, you know, a good example that I would say was the Indo-Pacific strategy mirror that you um, had the great joy of uh, shepherding through the much-loved interagency process. <laughs> I think what many people starting in this field don't realize is you absolutely need an intellectual framework to be successful in a job like yours, but you also just have to be able to do stuff and um, suffer um, insults and be diplomatic. And the Indo-Pacific strategy was, to my mind, the most coherent strategic document out of the government on the Indo-Pacific in a long time. I think part of that reflects a growing consensus, a bipartisan consensus about China and about allies, and a public consensus. You can see in the polls over the last 10 years how the American public has said, it's not about China, it's about allies. And the Indo-Pacific strategy, I think I counted, mentions allies and partners 33 times. And I'm sure there are bean counters in Beijing who noticed that too. So it's a clear shift from where the debate was, and it's an enduring framework, I think. Can I, can I ask you on that, Mike, since it's a, it's a conversation? I, I do want to get your sense on this. I, I actually believe that there is substantial bipartisan agreement around the challenges that China presents. And I, I see that basically amplified and playing out in our domestic and in our dialogues almost on a regular basis. The two areas where I see a substantial debate, to be honest, one is on the role of allies and partners. I, I think in the past, it had always been the Republican Party that had been so strong on that but frankly, there are elements now within the Republican Party that are, I think, more nationalist and sort of are so are a little uncertain, maybe thinking we can take this by ourselves and worried about encumbrances. And then the third area is, frankly, on trade and economics, which I don't need to tell either of you, become much more complicated. It, it used to be that we understood the playbook about how to get through 
sort of the dynamics that exist in, in the Democratic Party, but with a very strong Republican Party. Now, the questions are much harder across the entire political spectrum. And so I'm heartened to hear you say that you believe that this will be enduring. My own view is that, that we're going to have to continue to make the case about the value values of allies and partner, but I'm not as confident. I know what the sort of the internationalist part of the Republican Party believes in, but I, I still hear lots of voices that are more skeptical about some of these uh, approaches. Well, there is definitely this wing in the Republican Party, and there's one in the Democratic Party as well, but it's quieter now because the Democratic Party is a lot more disciplined. And there is this wing in the Republican Party and the the MAGA crowd and the new NATSEC, you know, conservatives or NATCON, national conservatives, are trying to find a intellectual framework for the America first outburst that Donald Trump had with the New York Times. It wasn't a strategy, it was an attitude. So they are trying to create that attitude. I think in the history of the Republican Party, this has always been there. And I would just note that a lot of the anti-alliance sentiment in the Republican Party is, is historically back to the 1870s anti-Europe. And when you actually look at the Indo-Pacific, you know, the Asia firsters were all the anti-NATO people in the Republican Party. So it's a bit, you know, what you see with parts of the Republican Party on Ukraine, for example, you know, I've been out of Washington six months. I think it's less pronounced with Taiwan, Japan, and Asia. But on the trade part, which I was going to try to find a way to subtly ding you on, <laughs> you, you self, you maybe you pre, pre-dinged yourself <laughs> on that one. I think that's you know, among allies, that's one of the biggest concerns about the strategy. And it's, it's hard in Washington, as you know, far better than I do. But that's sort of how I'd frame it. But for those who haven't read the Indo-Pacific strategy, you know, it's big on allies and partners, which is great because you, Kurt, and I and Mira have been doing allies and partners for, well, you and I, Kurt, for close on 30 years. And let's face it, 25 years ago, cool people didn't do allies and partners. That's right. We, I mean, but Mike, it, it is a remarkable achievement if you look at the various schools of thought, we were a pretty lonely tribe, to be honest. There were a, a few of us that thought it was important, but, you know, n- not a large group. And to see it now to be a dominant strand in strategic thinking is quite gratifying. It felt a little bit like being in the math club in public high school. Probably you know? <laughs> probably a little more geeky than that even, Mike. Yeah. The strategy is really interesting, Mira, because it it emphasizes odds and partners, and that's where the center of gravity is, clearly, for strategic thinkers and the public, and I think the Congress. But I'm going to turn it to Jude in a sec after I ask this, But and you may have seen the foreign affairs piece I did, but the strategy emphasizes shaping the environment around China, not shaping China's choices. And that's a real departure from how governments approach China for my whole lifetime, basically. It is a little out of sync with how Japan or Korea or India talk about China. They talk about moving to a productive relationship with China, clearly competing, but they kind of talk about what the, you know, to quote Petraeus, how does this all end? So I wanted to ask you about that and then turn it over to Jude, because that doesn't come through in the national security strategy. It doesn't come through in the Indo-Pacific strategy. How does this all end? Is this is this a twilight struggle? Is this a rough period in American history? I get asked that quite a bit out here, and there is very strong alignment, and, and we can go back to it. You've done very well with our allies, but that's one area where we aren't sort of singing from the same hymnal. So I'll let you try that one, Amira, and then Kurt, if it's okay, and then back to you. We'll both jump in on this one. Thanks, Mike. So I think it's important to know just off the bat that the Indo-Pacific strategy is not primarily our China strategy. As you well have noted, and indeed you did, the Indo-Pacific strategy spends about three meaty paragraphs 
characterizing our views of the PRC and the U.S. relationship with the PRC. And in those three paragraphs, it pulls no punches, but then it moves on. And in fact, the you know proper noun PRC or China does not feature again in the rest of the strategy. And this was very purposeful. It's not because we don't have our eyes on the prize and we're not thinking all the time about the nature of U.S.-China competition. Of course, Kurt is, and so many of our colleagues are. But the purpose of the Indo-Pacific strategy was to talk to the region and to talk to the region outside of China. And what we sought to do in that conversation was to make clear that our approach to the Indo-Pacific was not reducible to our competition with China. And quite to the contrary, that we have a broad set of affirmative agenda items with which most of the region also has shared views. So rather than you know making an ally or a partner feel like our regional strategy was all about various dimensions of our competition with China, we sought to be very explicit about what we were seeking to achieve in five different major categories where we believe our allies and partners also have shared interests, to show them, not just tell them, that this wasn't just about competition with China. Now, of course, our allies and partners know us better than anybody, and they know that competition with China continues to feature very prominently in our foreign policy and is, of course, a huge part of the national security strategy. But I think those two different conversations can coexist alongside each other. And for the sake of this document and for the sake of our being able to use it as a basis for future policy endeavors with the region, which, of course, we have every day since, it was very important that the document not treat U.S. China as sort of the central focal point, but rather lay out the broad set of areas in which we can cooperate, not just with our closest treaty allies, but a wide range of partners. Art? Yeah, look, I agree very much with, with what Mira has just said, Mike, and I'd just add a couple of things if I can. I, I think, you know, part is that we believe that, that the nature of this partnership and engagement with uh, friends around the region uh, is animated by many things. And it is not simply in opposition to China or in competition with China. I think we wanted to articulate that quite clearly. It is about sustaining an operating system that we believe has um, served our interests well, produced the greatest period in um, accumulation of wealth and lifting people out of poverty in, in human history. The second thing I would just say, Mike, I, I think what we've tried to acknowledge is the humility that I think is more important with respect to actually shaping how countries make choices, right? And I think a huge part of an earlier period of engagement with China was about a kind of leadership or government social engineering that over time, e even though there will be people who will quarrel with this, who will quibble with it and say, oh, that's not true. But I think you and I were both in councils of power, and there was a belief that over time that elements of China's power would mellow or liberalize or bend or trend in a particular direction, and that they would become, in the words of our friend Bob Zelik, as some sort of, you know, kind of responsible stakeholder in the system. And I think what we have found, of course, over time is uh, a country that seeks to adapt certain elements and merge others into a system that perhaps serves their interests, but perhaps not ours as much. I would say one other thing, if I can, Mike, in terms of endpoints, and we've heard this a lot, it is often contrasted with the X articles in Kennan. 
and that like they're very clearly stated at the out at, in, in those documents sort of what the end game was with respect to the former Soviet Union. And I would just I would I lived through that and I would just resist that. I just think that's inaccurate and historically wrong. I think the animating belief among most of the strategic thinkers during the 70s and 80s is that the Soviet Union was playing a stronger hand. Much of Kissinger's diplomacy was animated by a belief that we had to cut deals, figuring out how to satiate and support a rising Soviet Union in the face of huge domestic challenges in the United States. So I think this idea that that end game of Soviet decline animated our thinking is wrong. And I, I remember writing a piece about Soviet decline in the 1980, late, late 1980s at Harvard. And people said, thinking, what are you talking about? That's just crazy talk. And so I would warn ourselves of that. But I would also just point out, we're in the very earliest stages of what I think is undeniably a new strategic era that has many elements in it that I think we did not face before. We have a China that is playing a dominant role in the global scene. We, we have a, a, a China that is more aligned with Russia, Russia involved in a desperate and horrible war in Europe that has brought both countries in the Indo-Pacific and Europe together. We're facing cascading, extraordinarily challenges uh, associated with climate change. All of these are basically converging together in ways that are going to shift the strategic framework dramatically. And it will test us undeniably. But being able to say where this all ends today, I think, is an unrealistically hard task. And what we are better able to do right now is making sure that we've got the right tools, appropriate investments, and right partnerships to be able to tackle what we see are the daily challenges ahead. I cannot tell you where we'll be in 20 years. My hope is that we will be standing strong with allies and partners on preserving a common approach to the global order in an environment where we've dramatically brought you know, carbon emissions down and we've stabilized a variety of conflicts globally that, that are undermining order. Kern Mira, I, I know we only have you for a little bit more, so I wonder if we can just slightly nudge the conversation to terrain, Kurt, you were just talking about, which is the Indo-Pacific strategy, but also the China strategy are birthed out into a world where we have a China that is, I think, acting with increasing strategic confidence for all the talk among some here that China's a peaking power. I, I don't really see that. It seems to be continuing to manifest areas and domains of strength that are going to continue to challenge us. I wonder if just a first question I can ask, what is your assessment of how Beijing is responding, let's say over the last six to 12 months, of some of these successes that have come out of the administration in terms of better alignment with allies and partners, You know, some of these strategic documents, which are, I think, more, more directly speaking to um, the world that the United States and its allies and partners want to create around China, what is your assessment today of how Beijing is responding, reacting, and adapting to uh, current U.S., Indo-Pacific, and China strategy? Judith, it's an excellent question. It's probably the most important question. And if I could just take a moment, like, you know, you, you, you'd like to think you have a strategic perspective that sort of endures and that is robust. 
the, the single most important insight that I think I've gleaned is largely due to you and the work that you've done on the idea that certain capacities of China may be waning over time. I, I mean, I try to test and examine that proposition constantly, but the truth is that I think we are still in a, in a phase where most strategic investors, most strategists, most others are talking about China uh, still operating at peak capacity, and that will continue for some time. Whether that is accurate or not, I think remains to be questioned. But uh, even though people debate workforce getting older and smaller, environmental challenges, a highly, highly hierarchical system that doesn't appear to self-correct and feedback loops are more challenged. Yes, I see all of those things, but still most of the people we interact with still believe that China is going to surmount those problems and going to be the dominant player in the next 20 or 30 years. And so I would say on some levels, I would say the jury is still out at best. Um, but I do think undeniably many of the problems that you point out and that we see playing out in the real estate sector, a variety of issues associated with technology, the, the, the difficulty in sustaining the kind of environment that best uh, supports the kind of creation that's necessary to keep up in the internet and the technology arena. I, I think we see a lot of things that would generally cause concerns in China or concerns for those who are observing China more generally. I'm not sure, however, that people believe that this inevitably leads to a China that is less powerful, less risk averse, more inclined to acknowledge that, you know, its peak period is past. I see no sign of that. I do believe that in the last year or so, there are signs that the senior Chinese elite have been surprised with our ability to muster other countries working together with us. I don't think they're very good at self-diagnosing that the most important ingredient in, in this is not masterful American diplomacy as much as Mir and I would like to claim that, but more just the extraordinary mistakes, frankly, that China's made in its diplomacy. If you asked me 10 years ago, would two countries would be most likely to subtly reposition strategically globally. Two in the running would be Great Britain and Australia. And look at where we are today, right? A very different set of circumstances, which I think is important. I do think that what we see are some tactical changes. Uh, certain areas where you see the Chinese trying to maneuver into sort of breathing space or, you know, less tension. But even then, you know, surprises can throw things off, such as the, the spy balloon over the United States. I don't think the senior Chinese elite planned that, expected it, and then had to deal with it. And I think have not dealt with it very effectively. Mira, can I ask a follow up on the point Kurt just made, which is, I think a lot of the progress the administration has made in building partnerships, alliances, and efforts like AUKUS, strengthening of the Quad, a lot of what Xi Jinping derisively calls these Cold War small circles, has, as Kurt just said, overlapped with a period of what looks like either Chinese overreach, you know, mistakes, belligerence. And I wonder, what does an administration's strategy look like in a world where China stops making these own goals? 
it seems to me that we're, you know, as we saw with, uh, no offense to the French, but as we saw with, with the meeting with Macron, I, I always feel like we're just one step away from some countries kind of pulling back to the center of gravity on their longstanding relationship with China. So do we worry about a world in which she, you know, as China often does, surprises us, course corrects, it's been doing this for decades, and, and starts acting with a bit more acumen and competence? How hard does that make life for us? Yeah, it's a terrific question, Jude, um, totally characteristically. And I would like to think that while obviously the world you're describing is a harder one, uh, the strategy that we have crafted is intended to be robust to that world. Um, you know, I think the premise of the Indo-Pacific strategy was in no way the idea that China was going to be making consistent own goals. Quite the contrary, um, that China was going to be and is going to be a formidable challenge and that we can't exactly predict where and when and how it will be challenging. So I don't think we assume any kind of linear projection in PRC behavior um, as we continue to implement the Indo-Pacific strategy. Moreover, I think the ideas that underpin it, and in particular, the sort of guiding principle of the Indo-Pacific strategy is this idea of building collective capacity. That is not just saying over and over again, allies and partners, allies and partners, but actually thinking methodically about how we build new partnerships, how we invest in existing ones, how we strengthen alliances in ways that make the collective whole much more capable of delivering towards their goal than they were before. Now, this idea of collective capacity doesn't assume that all allies and partners are proceeding at the same pace all the time, or that some of them don't experience it changes that make some of this work a little bit more challenging, right? Most of our allies and partners, um, of course, do happen to be democracies. So um, we expect all kinds of government turnover. We expect all kinds of, you know, potential uh, rethinking about um, the geostrategic picture inside of ally and partner countries. That's sort of just comes with the cake that we are, are all baking here, um, to use a somewhat tortured metaphor. But what I think we do believe is that by keeping this focus on collective capacity and continuing to encourage allies and partners alike to invest in the same structures we're investing in to keep their eyes fixed on the same set of goals, we're pretty robust to some of these perturbations, even if they do feel like momentary setbacks, we keep moving in the right direction. So we've taken a lot of your time, really appreciate it. You know, I was just thinking about the last month alone and um, the points that the administration's put on the board, um, the Korean Indo-Pacific strategy largely aligns with the thinking you're describing, the U.S.-Japan-Netherlands agreement on, you know, semiconductor fabrication, export controls, U.S.-India agreement on tech, the access agreements of the Philippines. I mean, that's just in one month. So you guys are busy. Yeah, plus two. And the Japan plus two plus two. And, and you know, we're probably weeks away from the AUKUS announcement with Australia on sub. So, Kurt, that, that one month would have been like three years in the Clinton DOD. Yeah. So it's an intense game you're in. You know, the big homework assignment, the professor in me says, is trade. And maybe we'll do that next time. But really appreciate it. Now, you guys are coming to us from the vice president suite in the EEOB. Yes. Right? Yeah. We're, we're actually going to be from the Secretary of War suite in the EEOB. Yeah. So right around the corner from Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Theodore Roosevelt's office. Yeah. Right? Indeed. And you can't do much better for a setting for um, strategery, as we used to call it in the Bush administration. So really appreciate you taking the time and what you're doing um, and look forward to the next chapter. And Mike, we will, we will commit to this if I can. 
look, this is an important year for a variety of things. We've talked about it all. Jude was very gracious. But the truth is, Mike, we, we do have to deliver IPEF. And that has components in it that are critical for the 21st century digital trade, supply chains. So we'll accept your, your offer to come on again later in the year after we, you know, we're going to do some digging. We're going to see what we can do. Um, but we, 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 we're not going to pretend that what you say is not accurate. It is true. That is the task ahead for us. And Mike, if if I can um, just add one more sort of piece of praise for you before we part, when we were working through the Indo-Pacific strategy, um, you were kind enough to give us some outside feedback. And I believe it was one of your great recommendations that inside the strategy itself, we should think about having some very specific objectives that we were going to achieve in the short term. So that the strategy wasn't just a lofty set of principles and high-level strategic objectives, but that, you know, folks who know these issues like you and like Jude and like everyone listening to this podcast can track our progress and follow it in greater homework, right? And if you look at the Indo-Pacific strategy, we actually did end up including something called the Indo-Pacific Action Plan, which had a list of 10 things that we were hoping to achieve in the first 12 to 24 months of strategy implementation. Now, if you look at that list, there are a bunch of things on it that we are making really great progress on, Um, whether that's standing up a new partnership for the Pacific Islands or launching IPAF or making great progress on AUKUS. You can kind of put check marks um, next to those boxes. But whether it is, you know, really moving IPAF um, towards fruition or showing up big time for our host year at APAC, there's no question that there's a lot more work to be done this year when it comes to the economic initiatives that we laid out in that action plan. So I think we both welcome the opportunity to continue having our homework graded, especially if it's going to be graded by two of the smartest guys on the block. I give an easy A, but yes, um, I think it's really important that you guys are doing that. I love it that Kurt interrupted me earlier as I was praising the strategy to challenge me on whether it was so great. Uh, we're in a tough, tough environment. And that kind of humility and self-criticism, you know, doesn't come naturally in the White House. And I think it's good you're doing it. So thank you both. It's been really, really interesting. We'll take you up on the trade discussion somewhere down the road. Great thank to you. see you. Best of luck down under, Mike. And thanks for all your good work, Jude. All the best. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at CSIS.org and click on the Asia program page. And for more on the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney, please visit ussc.edu.au.